As you know, uh, we are currently, as I say, in the book of Mark. It is um, the final week. We're in the final week of Jesus' life on earth in Mark. And uh, he's in Jerusalem. And we saw last Sunday evening that he's been teaching in the temple. And the Sanhedrin have come to him and they've sort of sprung up a trap. They asked him uh, a, a question of why he's doing these things. And Jesus has responded with, uh, in Mark chapter 11, verse um, 27 to 33, with a question about John the Baptist. Like, you know, um, the question about John the Baptist was the baptism of John from God or from um, um, man. And sort of that's trapped them a bit. And he's followed that up now with an imagined story which we look at in verse, Mark chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 12. The story goes something like this. A man uh, decides to plant a vineyard. I call it a vineyard. You call it a vineyard. That's interesting. We'll we ask Brother Rob to adjudicate <laughs> afterwards, right? Uh, a, 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 uh, right? A vineyard, right? He then rents it out to farmers uh, who promise to give him a share of crops. And then the man, of course, travels abroad. He travels to live abroad. Perhaps he's gone to south of France or something just to enjoy life, Right? When the time of harvest comes, while he's abroad, uh, the owner sends uh, his servant to collect his share of the profits. But the tenant beat the servant and sends him away. These tenants are like tenant farmers that is put in charge of this vineyard to look after. But when he sends his servants, they beat him up. They beat up the, they beat up the servants. And then he sends another one. Uh, they beat the third, the second one. He sends a third, they kill a third one. And then this goes on. He just keeps sending servants to collect the profits, and they just keep beating them or killing them, right? The tenants are very evil. So the man is at the end of his rope, and uh, so he says to himself, I will send my son to them, right? He's the only one I have, uh, but surely these thugs uh, will see my son. They'll recognize that he carries my authority. And they'll have respect for him, right? But as soon as the son arrives, the tenants say to themselves, look at this. It is the son, the heir to this vineyard. Uh, if we kill him, it will be ours. And of course, they kill his son and shamefully toss his body out of the vineyard. When his father hears the news, he comes and destroys all of the tenants. But to our shock, instead of the, the owner just selling it off or just closing down shop, he decides to appoint new tenants to work and enjoy in the vineyard with him. And life moves on. That's the story we read in Mark chapter 12, verse 1 to 9. And I think it's important just to read it from again, just so that we get the story with Jesus' own words. Verse 1, it says that a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, so this is security, and then he listed to tenants and went into another country. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, 
he sent him to them and saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to give the vineyard to others. Verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? Jesus is asking the question. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And and he goes on to say, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. That's the Sanhedrin. So they left him and went away. Now I wonder, as you heard me tell the story, as we've just read it, as Brother Ola read it before, as you hear or read that story, what questions or feelings does it generate within you? Maybe you're puzzled as you read that, you're thinking to yourself, what sort of evil people are these tenants? I mean, who repays such amazing kindness with unimaginable rebellion and brutality? Perhaps you're frustrated with the owner. I was a bit frustrated with the owner. How can he allow the tenants to treat him like a doormat? And why put his son in such arms? Well, it's obvious these guys were never going to, you know, give up the vineyard. The other question I have, you may have perhaps, it's not one I have, but some may read this and they feel sorry for the son. He's so loving, he's so obedient to his dad, and he's going, knowing he's going to die, really, based on the record. But he goes, and you may look at the son and think, hmm, you feel so sorry for him, right? We have many questions when we read this passage, and when parables, we need to ask those questions. When we read Bible stories, we have to ask these questions. And as we read this question, we realize that they're all begging a bigger question. And the question is this, why has Jesus told the story? Why has he told this story? Well, the answer is in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. That's the Sanhedrin. For they perceived, they understood, that he had told the parable against them. The Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead. And Jesus has told a story, if you like, to reveal why he has come. And where the Sanhedrin, these people were opposing him, the religious council, fit into what is happening to Jesus. Now, to help you understand how this relates to them, the, the, the clues are this. The owner in the story is God the Father, right? Is God the Father. The vineyard is God's people in the Old Testament Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel, past and present. The fruit the owner is looking for in this story, it's like an allegory, uh, is right living before God or living an obedient life before God. The beaten and killed servants are the prophets in the Old Testament, including John the Baptist, who they have just, Herod has just killed. The beloved son in the story is God the Son, Jesus. And he's going to be killed on Good Friday as we go through the passage, and he'll be killed on the cross. And he'll be buried in the tomb. The new tenants is a new community of God, the church, that now has ownership of the vineyard. 
If you like, when we think about this story, the story is really a parable. It's, it's something like this. God chose Israel and he planted them in the promised land. In fact, he planted them in this world in order to represent him and fulfill his purposes in the world. So God set over Israel leaders, kings and many other leaders, even prophets to care and guide it. But instead, many of these leaders rebelled against God. So God tried to correct them by sending prophets after prophets, whom some they beat, some they persecuted, some they just killed, like Isaiah, sown in two, right? And now, through our history, God has now, it's come to a moment where he has sent his son, Jesus, to serve Israel. But the Sanhedrin who are there are planning to kill Jesus. So that is all what the story is about. That is the parable. The parable. This parable works like an allegory. That's a story. Right? It's a story of Israel. It's a story of Jesus coming. And it's a Sanhedrin opposing him and they'll kill him. So we might say the same when it's finished, right? <laughs> right? But we're not quite. So the question we have to then ask is, uh, what, what lessons do we learn from this for us here? Well, I think there are three lessons I just want to quickly uh, run through here. The first lesson as we think about this and all those questions we have about this story, the first thing we should learn from it is that God is patient with our sin. God is patient with our sin. You see, when you ask an average person, if I ask you this question, you say, are human beings good or evil? I think 99% of the time, most of the time, people will say human beings are basically good people. There are a few evil people there, but they're broadly good. But this story tells us the opposite. This story tells us that people are evil. The tenant farmers take what doesn't belong to them. They beat and kill other human beings. Look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 says, And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And then he has still one other, a beloved son, finally sent it to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. You know, when you think about what these guys are doing in this story, the first question you ask yourself is, why are they doing these evil things? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's, it's, it's there in verse 7. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They want control over the vineyard. They want control over the means of production. They want to have control over their lives to give them comfort, to have security. What they long for is to have independence from the owner. You see, these tenants have no love for anyone else. They live to please only themselves. We might say their motto in life is me first and everyone else second. And as we think about their actions and their attitudes, we realize that these farmers are doing what the Bible calls sin. Sin in the Bible is not only doing bad things. Sin is simply not putting God first in our lives. Not putting the owner of the vineyard first. And the truth is that all of us are like that. God is your creator. Your life is his vineyard. He alone deserves to be first in your life. Nothing else. Not my wife, not my children. God must be first and everything else must fit in there. 
But no one here can truly say all the time in all our lives we put God first. No one can. None of us do. All of us live for ourselves at the fundamental level. So in some sense, we are no different from these tenants. We are all sinners just like them. And this is a big problem, you see, for us because our sin is begging God to punish us. It's begging God to do what he does in verse 9, right? But the amazing thing is that and God must do that. Why? Because God is completely holy. He cannot look upon anything that is evil. And we sin against him every day. But the amazing thing is this, is that Look at the gap between verse 2 and verse 9. God sends people to warn us. And he does all of these things. He's very patient. You know, a lot of people think of God as sort of just on tenterhooks to punish us. But the image of God we have in the Bible is that God is not in a rush to punish sinners. God is patient with our sin. It's quite extraordinary. You can't bear to look at it. But he's patient with our sin. I was driving yesterday on my way to, um, day before yesterday, to Dunstable, because I was there, I went there for an overnight meeting. And it was raining, pouring down M25, M1, for some reason. Just that straight, which sometimes happens on the motorway. And there was just so much traffic, and all of a sudden, minutes were added to it. You know, you had planned a journey for an hour and seven minutes, you know, it's always exact Google. It's now all of a sudden, it's two-hour journey. I'm going to be late for this meeting that starts at 3 p.m. on Friday. And that was becoming really irritated and frustrated that I can't get there in time. I was like, why didn't you just... I was impatient with myself. I was impatient with other drivers. just wanted to get there, right? I realized that I get frustrated by small things all the time. Just like waiting on the motorway. But God is not like that. God has power over himself. He is able to restrain his anger against us, even though every fiber of his being, his holiness, is screaming to punish us. And you know, in the Bible, there's full of examples of God being patient. You know, he said God took six days, the Bible tells us, to create the world. But he took seven days to destroy Jericho. It took longer to destroy Jericho than it took to create the world. We, we come to Revelation, we read that God speaks to this woman Jezebel who has been misleading people and she says, I've given her time to repent. And you look at the damage she's done and you think, why is he giving them time to repent? When we're going through judges, we read, God must raise judge after judge. He raises 12 judges because Israel is going through a cycle of just rebelling against God. Think of God bringing the children into the promised land itself and how impatient they are with Moses and, 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 and they all want to go back but God perseveres. Think of the disciples that they've been with Jesus. They have just been not getting it, right? And Jesus is just patient with them. You know, God is quick to build. God is quick to build and slow to pull down sinners who rebel against him. And if you have surrendered to Jesus, you know you are living this truth. If you have come to that position of completely surrendering your life to Jesus, you know that already. The only reason you're a Christian, and many other people are not, is because God was patient with you at that time when you didn't know him. 
You were in the same man and you didn't surrender your life to him. But he kept being patient with you. He kept encouraging you to look to him. You know that already. He worked patiently to bring you to faith. And even now, as a follower of Jesus, God is patient with you every day. You know how many times you let God down. You know that. You know how many terrible decisions you make every day sometimes. You know that you do not always love and care for God as he loves and cares for you. You know, you sometimes even doubt God that he's there at all, let alone just caring for you. And yet his love for you is constant. His spirit is gently working to reassure you of his presence. He's sending people in your life to point you back to him, to nature you, to support you. Some of those people, they're like these servants. You don't even appreciate them. <laughs> like, this, like, like those servants that God uh, has been sent, the, the owner was sending. But God loves you and he's patient with you and he's, he has promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He has committed himself to be patient with you in all your failures and in all your sins. Remarkably enough. He committed himself to always love you. And every human being longs to have someone who is patient and caring. You know, when you're getting married, that's what you think about, isn't it? I've got to marry somebody who would love me for me. And I'm a mess, usually, so I'm going to marry somebody who will be patient with my mess. Right? That's what we, that's what we all long for. That's what we want. And, and, and the amazing thing is that we know this in our own life, isn't it? God has blessed us with believers, parents, spouses, friends, Right? who are patient with us. But when, it, when we compare those people to God, they are nothing like God. Because you see, God is always constantly patient. You know, maybe you worry sometimes, you're a follower of Jesus, you worry sometimes, and you look at your life, and you see all the mess you're making, and you're asking yourself, will God just one day be fed up with me, right? Well, if you're in Christ, no. God will always be patient with you. Why? Because your sins have all been paid for in Jesus. You see, God doesn't have a long fuse. His patience is actually as a result of the fact that it is already sorted out for you in Jesus. And so God is patient with you because Christ paid it all for you. His wrath against your sin is settled forever. And if you do not know Jesus, God wants you to know Christ, to come to Christ and to surrender to him so that you can truly enjoy his patience in Christ. God is patient with our sin. That's the first thing we learn here. The second truth we learn is an important one, just as important, is that God is not blind to our sin. You see, God is patient with us, but his patience does not mean he turns a blind eye to sin. Because some of us think, oh, God is patient. Oh, wow, that's great, right? <laughs> I can just keep him waiting. I don't have to turn my life to him. No, God being patient does not mean he turns a blind eye to sin. God is committed to punishing sin or correcting sinners. For God's children, he corrects them. For people who don't believe in God, he will punish them. You see, when God is patient, it is because he's doing either of two things. When God is patient with you, it is either because if you're... It is either because he's just delaying punishing you because you rebelled against him, and if you're a believer, he's delaying correcting you at some point to another time. It's coming, but it's delayed. Or he's deferring it to help you see your sin and repent. It's part of 
him bringing you closer to him. And if you're a child of God and you're living in sin, just sinning against God, it is because God has allowed his patient with you in that position because he wants you to see the ugliness of your sin and he's working redemptively to bring you back to himself. In this story, actually, we see both of them. We see both of them, God doing both of their sins. But particularly, I want us to see here that God is delaying his punishment but he's not putting it off forever. In the end, he intends to punish sinners who reject his son. Look at verse 6 to verse 8 here. Because he says in verse 6, isn't he? The, the, the owner says, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And of course, this is God being patient with us, right? But we return this patience by rejecting him. And Jesus is actually saying something important here. He's saying, when we refuse to surrender our lives to God, it's not like we're sitting on the fence. You know, sometimes with colleagues at work, do you believe in God? They're like, no, I need to do or do. You know, I'm just in between. I'm sitting on the fence on this one. And sometimes people come to church, you tell them that they, they need to surrender their lives to Christ. They say, well, I'm not opposed to Jesus. I'm just sitting on the fence. But Jesus here is saying there's nothing like sitting on the fence. Right? Actually not surrendering to Jesus, not respecting Jesus, not respecting the Son, is the same as shouting that you hate Jesus, that you want to kill him. According to Jesus, when you don't respect, Surrender to Jesus, you are actually saying, come, let us kill him, and his inheritance will be mine. You are saying, God is too soft to do anything about me believing in him, right? By refusing to surrender your life to Jesus, according to Jesus, you are saying, this Jesus God has sent is a nobody. Why should I give him my life? This is my vineyard. By refusing to surrender to Jesus, you are in effect, according to Jesus, taking the body of Jesus and tossing it over the fence. You're saying his death for you doesn't mean anything. You are desecrating the crucified body of Jesus. And that's actually quite a serious thing because one of the wonderful things about going through Mark is that we hear and read how Jesus himself sees things. And this is how Jesus sees things. He says, look, I've come to die for you. God has been so patient with you. And you need to surrender your life to my authority. And if you don't do that, you are as good as crucifying me, tossing my body over the vineyard of your life. And this is quite sobering, isn't it, as we hear it, because we remember that some of us here have heard sermon after sermon, but we believed we were sitting on the fence. I think of children raised in Christian homes. God has sent the servants. Who are the servants? Mom and dad, right? God has sent other servants in the church, at school, etc. Sermon after sermon has been given to them. And God is saying, she'll respect my son. He'll respect my son. But then we turn around and say, no, this is Jesus. Come, let's kill him. And they near it as we are. They now run my own life if I have nothing to do with And God is saying to you, what do you expect God to do when he's shown you his love already? That's the question Jesus asked in verse 9. Did you see that? What will the owner of the vineyard do? And we are given the answer. He will come and destroy 
The tenants. That's sobering, isn't it? That God will destroy people he created. That you sentence them to eternal punishment forever. It's something we find deeply uncomfortable. But Jesus himself is saying it and, 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 and it makes us feel quite unsettling. God is saying, I love you, but I love my son more. And if you keep refusing to surrender to my son, then I have no choice but to punish you forever. And all of a sudden we have two positions. The God who is very patient and has been persevering, now we see he's also the God of justice. God is not desiring to send you to hell. Rather, God is saying, you are rejecting the son I love who died for you. And I, I cannot say I love my son if I don't do anything about your sin. So in some degree, it's not really personal between you, God. It's personal between you. It's personal between him and Jesus. He has to do something about his son. And so you have to remember that God is patient, but he's not blind to sin. And if you have not surrendered to Jesus, then I encourage you to do it today. Come before him in true repentance. Accept his grace and patience. Accept, all, accept that all the good things you can do cannot buy your new life with God. You know, sometimes we want to do things for God. But being with Jesus is not about doing good things for God. It's actually accepting that we are like the tenants, that we can do things for God. We, it's impossible. I, I, I can't help but live with myself. I mean, that, that's, we are like that by sinful nature. But the good news of Jesus is that if you recognize that and you surrender to him and you just trust him to save you based on what he has done on the cross for you, then you will be forgiven of your sin. Past, present, and future. Just trust in what Jesus has done on the cross for you. And from the moment you surrender your life to him like that, God will forgive your sins and he will unite you to himself. You will be what people call born again. What Jesus himself said, called born again. The term has been somewhat used and abused. But essentially God gives you new life. Right? And that's what God is offering. When you think about it, when you think about how wonderful God is, you think what he offers us, you wonder why not, why not everyone is a Christian. Well, not everybody is a Christian because the reason for that is people want to still live, control their vineyard. Still want to control the vineyard that belongs to them. They still want to take back control, if you like, to, to be in control of their own lives. But the offer God gives us in Jesus is so brilliant. And if you refuse to Accept that. Well, it's verse 9, isn't it? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. You will remain under the eternal punishment of God because God is patient with our sin. That's the first point. But the second point is that God is not blind to our sin. Here's a quick final point. The final point we learn here is that God is not just blind to our sin. Not, not just patient with us, and God is not blind to our sin. The third thing we learn is that God is bigger than our sin. God is bigger than our sin. You know, if the story ended in the middle of verse 9, what would you say? If it just ended in the middle of verse 9, when we read, what would the owner do? You come and destroy the tenants, and we end there. We'll think it's pointless. We'll be like, what's this about? God tried to prove his love to human beings, but they rejected his love. So out of vindictiveness, he destroyed them, right? 
it will make us wonder why he created us in the first place. Right? But the story doesn't end there of the Bible. It takes a dramatic twist in the middle of verse 9. Notice what it says in verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Instead of God giving up on his vineyard, Israel, he graciously gives it to another group to look after it, so to speak. If you like, the purposes of Israel are now fulfilled in another group. Who are the others? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 10 to 11. Let's read that. Have you not read the scripture? This is a question. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you noticed something? The vineyard there becomes a building, right? It becomes a new building with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You know, in New Testament times, buildings were held together by a large stone at the corner of the building to provide stability and orientation to the rest of the building. This thing which held it together was called a cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, is now, we can ask the architect perhaps, uh, those that are, that, are, that are in this sort of field. Uh, Jesus is saying, he is now the cornerstone of a new house of God, a new vineyard, right? It is in Jesus, um, the son of David, that Israel itself finds its salvation, that all of us who trust in Jesus find salvation. You see, the amazing thing about this story is that Jesus is not so much warning the Sanhedrin. Because you can read this story and think, what Jesus is saying is, if you kill me, you're dead. Right? You might think that's what he's saying, but that's not what he's saying. He's warning them that their sin against him will cost them. But the bigger point he's making is this. It's in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is saying, he has come to die for us. The point of this passage is that Jesus knows they will kill him. The point of this passage is that God is working through the sinful action of the Sanhedrin to save sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The God of the Bible does not work in our lives despite sin, but even through our sin. God is always infinitely bigger than our sin. Now we need to pause there, don't we? We need to be clear here that God working through the sinful actions of people like you and me does not take away from our responsibility for the sins we commit. You know, a driver causes an accident on the road, right? Through careless driving. And then he turns around and says, God is sovereign, he must have made it happen, right? Because God controls our things, surely he made it happen, right? So we are forcing the question, isn't it? Is God in control over all the decisions or our choice is real. The Bible says it is both. The Bible teaches us clearly that all human decisions we do are real and tangible. You made a real and tangible decision to come to church this morning. And yet the Bible also tells us that it is God who ordered and directed your decision to come here. And that's why sometimes we look at the uh, some of the stuff we find in the Bible, it splits on our head, isn't it? Sometimes we can get the impression that somehow Christianity is not intellectually demanding. Far from it. Here we are given a paradox by God. He orders all things, and yet your decisions are real. How do you reconcile that? I don't know how you reconcile that. 
But Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human. How do you reconcile that? I don't know. God is three in one. Right? How do you reconcile that? I don't know. The point is that the scriptures has these paradoxes because we're dealing with a God who's beyond our understanding. In this case, your decisions are real, every decision you make, but at the same time, God orders every decision you make. The Lord is casting the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God overrules our actions and works through them, even working through our sin. And those, that sin we commit is owned by us, we are responsible for it, and yet God is sovereign working through it. And the reason I'm making that point is because this is what Jesus, in effect, is saying. And Peter repeats it in Acts 2, verse 22 to 24. I'll just read it for you. Then. Acts 2, verse 22 to 24, it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, you don't have to turn to you. A man attested to you. By God with mighty works and, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by him. Who killed Jesus? Sinners killed Jesus. They put him to death by their free and evil choices. Yet Peter tells us it was God who put Jesus to death in order to save you from sin. God allowed sinners to stab him in his holy chest because he loved you enough to work through sinful actions to bring you to himself. If you are a true follower of Jesus, this is a marvelous truth. To know that God is bigger than your sin. It should cause you to be thankful to God. You should take comfort in this mystery. Because you see, all of us have a natural tendency to think of God's work in terms of miraculous intervention. Excitement, you know, everything swimming along nicely, that means God is at work, right? When we pray for things, we all want rapid answers. Quick, positive results. We love dramatic Stories of conversions. Oh, you know, he was a drunkard. He used to beat his wife. He used to kill the neighbor. Now God has saved him. Isn't that amazing? Right? We love that, right? Perhaps saved in Belmash. Or something like that, right? And God does that, right? You think of the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. You know, God does save people. You think of Saul in the Bible, right? On the road to Damascus. But the normal way it works in our life is through ordinary means, and often it is in the middle of sinful human action, where we just see hopelessness. And because we do not realize that God is working even in our failures, what happens is that we lose our patience, don't we? When we are praying for God to do something in our lives and other people, we, we give up because it seems like nothing is happening, or things are getting worse. But this passage is saying to us, look, yes, sometimes the situation looks hopeless, but remember, I am bigger than your flaws. I am bigger than your sins. Now, I don't know as you sit here this morning what sinful situation you are currently facing where it feels so hopeless. You know, maybe you're a parent and your child is getting more and more rebellious, right? 
You have a son, you, baby, you have a son like Samson, just getting worse and worse and worse every time. You're trying to help her out, but she just doesn't want to know. And you feel like giving up. You're wondering what is going on here. And maybe you don't even feel like praying anymore. Or maybe you have a friend whom you desire that they would turn from a sinful life and surrender their life to Jesus. And honestly speaking, you evaluate everything and you can't see any miracles that are on the shelf. <laughs> right? You, or maybe you, it's, it's you. Maybe you are struggling with an addiction here. A secret addiction of some sort. You're trying to live for God, but it is hard. You keep getting up and you keep getting down. Uh, these situations can leave us feeling empty. They can leave us wondering whether change will ever come. And you know what? The devil is always on hand. The devil likes to whisper, doesn't it? Especially, you know, when you fall, he comes to you and says, mm, God is on holiday. <laughs> I told you he's going to another country, right? This is too difficult for him, you know. It's too difficult for him. He cannot help you on this one. He helped you on that one last time, but no on this one. This is all new in heaven. They are trying to figure it out. Right? I've been there, you say, right? You are on your own. Or maybe you are just looking at your life right now and wondering about all those wasted years mired in sin. Resisting God. And it brings you to tears. You know, some people, when they, are, when they come to faith in Jesus, they look back and they make so many terrible mistakes. They think, I wish I had turned to Jesus when I was young. And they're just crushed by tears and they feel they're just bumping along, and sometimes it brings tears to their eyes, and they feel dejected and down. I, I don't know what your situation is, right? What I do know is that in all the ugliness of our sins, all the wrongs, all the struggles, if we're trusting in Jesus, God is still working through those. How do I know? Because, well, because of Romans. Because of Romans, don't I? I know it because of Romans 8, verse let me see if I can find it. Romans 8, verse 28, which you know by heart, don't you? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's amazing. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some, all things, even your sinful situations, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can agree with Paul because God is always one step ahead. He's always working to overrule our sin. In Jesus, God is always bigger than your sin. I'm so comforted by that. In the end, it's not about you. It is about him. And so if you're struggling in whatever area, leave it to our God to order and provide. Leave it to the God of patience to take care of it. If it's sin, repent of the sin. But if you keep falling, keep going back to him, surrendering to him, continuing that. He's already at work for you in Christ. Go to him. And if you do not know Christ, then come to this God of patience. Come to this God who's bigger to work through your mess. And you know the joy of loving and following him.